Well, to start off with, turn with me to Exodus 19, and then we'll get to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Exodus 19, kind of paved the way. We're going to set the scene here for just a few moments. Now, you'll recall from last week that Deuteronomy is a renewal of the covenant that God made with his people. And you'll recall that the covenant or the treaty structure with which God constructed Deuteronomy, it begins with what scholars call historical prologue. This is a history of what got Israel to this point. And you'll recall that this is the second generation of Israelites. Many of them are hearing this information for the very first time. Now, it occurred to me that we have so many new folks here at Grace Bible Church who haven't been here with us for our series through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers that in an ironic way, tonight will serve the same function for you as well as we go through the history just as it did for the Israelites 3,500 years ago, giving a review of where we've been. Now, we said that the main theme we're focused on in Deuteronomy is covenant salvation. The idea that salvation as God's chosen nation of Israel is based in covenant. And we should note once again, that the Israelite covenant, more popularly called the Mosaic covenant, but it's more accurately called the Israelite covenant, the Israelite covenant did not in and of itself spiritually save. Even the Apostle Paul said no one has ever been saved by the law. What it did was provide the knowledge of salvation, which is by faith and the repentant heart of worship. The law of God presented and provided the means by which the saved individual also might express his love through obedience to the law. We saw last time that the Israelite covenant provides a shadow, a a model of sorts for the coming new covenant in Christ, with the new covenant being superior to the old covenant, since the new covenant is founded supremely in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So before we begin walking through the text of Deuteronomy, it's important to put all of Deuteronomy, all of the speeches of Moses to the second generation of Israelites to put it in the proper context of the purpose of Israel. And we've said this before, but I want to make sure we all start on the same page. Exodus 19, beginning in verse 4, presents the purpose of Israel, the reason they exist. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Here it is. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. For ages, Christians have asked the question, What is the connection of Israel and the church? That has always been a major topic of study. And sadly, beginning with the Roman Catholic religion, then bleeding over into the Reformation even, the answer has often been the church is the new Israel. Or the church has replaced Israel, called by some replacement theology. There are a lot of different versions of that view, But this view really ignores the broad scope of God's plan for Israel, which is outlined here. They're to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. What does that mean? It means that they were to show to their ungodly pagan neighboring nations the greatness of the true one living God. This was the purpose of all the laws that made them different, set them apart from their neighbors. They're they're different in every way. 
And the lesson here is that trying to be like the world to attract the world doesn't work. It's faulty. Rather, they were to be different from the rest of the world to attract the world to God from a human standpoint. And as we'll see, Israel didn't do a very good job at all. And yet that didn't negate God's purpose for Israel. They had a responsibility to show the one true living God to the world. And while they ultimately failed in that responsibility, in the sovereign plan of God, their failure led to the exact circumstance prophesied and required for the birth of the Savior, Jesus Christ, a Jew who would, in fact, faithfully keep the law, who would, in fact, show God to the world in the form of himself. And so in that sense, has Israel succeeded? Well, you're here, aren't you? A room full of Gentiles who love the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus succeeded where Israel failed. And so recall that Israel was and will be again God's vehicle to show himself to the rest of the world. That purpose has never changed. And remember, all this is connected all the way back to God's covenant with Abraham. In Genesis 12, God promised to make Abraham into a great nation. And through him, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. See also again, Gentile Christians. And so here we are because of God's faithfulness first to Abraham and then to Israel. Now, keep all that in mind. That's the background scenery. Now we can turn to Deuteronomy chapter 1. And tonight, Moses, in his series of sermons to the second generation of Israelites, now camped on the eastern banks of the Jordan River, on the plains of Moab, Moses begins what we said last week was the, the, the form of a suzerain vassal treaty. He begins preaching, begins preaching this treaty, the restatement, the reiteration of the law of God to Israel. He begins by recounting the history of covenant salvation. And that's our topic tonight, the history of covenant salvation. Now, last week we read Deuteronomy 1, 1 through 5. That's the preamble. That's the introduction to the renewal of the covenant in which we see that Israel is now camped just across from the city of Jericho. And they are ready to take the land that God has given to them. We saw that we're in the 40th year since the Exodus. We're at the 11th month. And the events of all of the book of Deuteronomy would take place over about a month or so. Not very long at all. Israel is preparing to take the land which was deeded to them by God through his covenant with Abraham. And there's a lot of different approaches we could take tonight. The approach that I'd like to take to our text is to think about fellowship with God. Fellowship with God because the historical prologue here of Deuteronomy, it really highlights the fact that God is in fellowship. He is in relationship with a people on earth. And so, very simply, I want to outline five lessons for enjoying fellowship with God. And we'll use the historical prologue to do this. Five lessons for enjoying fellowship with God. Now, let me define fellowship for you first. It's very simple. It is the state of being in right relationship with God. It is the state of being in right relationship with God. That's what fellowship is. The first lesson for enjoying fellowship with God. God initiates fellowship. God initiates fellowship. Now, we're going to spend about half of our time on this one point. So if you're wondering if you missed one, you didn't. We're going to be here for a while. And God initiates fellowship. In chapter 1, verse 6, through the end of chapter 3, Moses gives the meat of the historical prologue. It's very much like recounting the raising of a child. And in this brief history, Moses will give some highlights, some key points 
But the whole history serves as a reminder that the nation was formed because of the will of God. The nation was chosen by the will of God. The nation is given the privilege of being in covenant with God by the will of God. And what that history is really going to highlight is that God is in covenant relationship with Israel despite Israel, not because of her. He's in covenant relationship despite Israel. And so we could add to this point that God initiates fellowship despite. And so I want to give you a short list here of in our first lesson for enjoying fellowship with God, God initiates fellowship despite, first of all, daily sin. God initiates fellowship despite daily sin. To begin this historical section, Moses recounts the call of God to go to Canaan. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 6. The Lord our God said to us in Horeb, that is Mount Sinai, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country and in the lowland, in the Negev and by the sea coast, the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and their offspring after them. Now, at this point, Moses is going to blend two different events which, in which the same thing happened. He's going to give a summary of two events as one event. These events happened, one in Exodus 18 and the other in Numbers chapter 11. And in both of these chapters, God provides Moses leaders to assist him. He provides a, some men for him. And so here, Moses summarizes these two events. Verse 9, at that time, I said to you, I am not able to bury you by myself. The Lord your God has multiplied you and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he has promised you. How can I bear by myself the weight and burden of you and your strife? What is the strife that Moses speaks of? Well, the fact that you have three to four to five million sinners all together, there's going to be problems. And in fact, this hierarchy of leaders which Moses established, verse 15 calls them wise and experienced men, they're called in verse 16, the judges of Israel. They were the judge righteously in the countless disputes that arose among God's people. Look at verse 17. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone for the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring it to me and I will hear it. And so God's chosen people, rescued miraculously from Egypt, were so steeped in their own sin that according to Numbers 11, it took 70 judges to hear the cases against each other continually. And by the way, that was just the top tier. According to Exodus 18 and here in verse 15, there were also judges or commanders for a total of a six-level hierarchy. So then the dispute would have to go through a commander of 10, of 50, of 100, of 1,000, to one of the 70. And if they were stumped, then it went to Moses. And I would imagine that you did not want to appear before Moses because the first question I would ask if I were Moses is, why didn't you listen to the first five? Why was this necessary? Because people are sinners and they needed appointed spiritual leadership to walk them through these issues of sin and conflict this gives us, by the way, a beautiful model of shepherding in the church, doesn't it? 
in a nation of three million plus people, every person had access to someone spiritually responsible for just 10. That's a great way to run the people of God. Here's a second way that God still initiates fellowship. Despite, God initiates fellowship despite rebellious fear. Despite rebellious fear. Now, the next part of the historical prologue recalls the sending of the spies into Canaan. But the big question is, what led to the sending of the spies into Canaan? Why did they do that? Chapter 1, verse 19. Then we set out from Horeb and went through all that great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. So why the spies? Why sin 12? The command was clear. Go up, take possession. This was recounted in Numbers chapters 13 and 14. Numbers 13, beginning in verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, everyone a chief among them. But the Numbers 13 account begins at the point where God gave the order to send the spies. Now, the Deuteronomy account starts before that order. Because while in Numbers 13, it seems that the event begins with God commanding to send the spies, we get more detailed information now in this text. We get more of the curtain pulled back. Look at verse 22. Then all of you came near me and said, Let us send men before us that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we may go up and the cities into which we shall come. The thing seemed good to me, and I took twelve men from you, one man from each tribe. And they turned and went up into the hill country and came out to the valley of Eshcol and spied it out. And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us and brought us word again and said, It is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Now, wait a minute. Was the sending of the spies, was it God's command or was it the people's wish? It was both in the proper order. First, The people expressed the wish to send the spies. Verse 23, it seemed like a reasonable idea to Moses. He took it to the Lord and the Lord issued the command. Now, why is this important? Because the Lord is issuing this command in response to the fear and the rebellion of Israel. All along, he'd been commanding that they were going to take this land, that it was a good land, that he would be with them, that he would be victorious in battle on their behalf. But they wanted to dip their toes in the water. They wanted to check it out. They did not want to operate by faith. They wanted to operate by sight. They wanted a confidence boost. The spies brought some of the abundant produce of the land back. At the end of verse 25, it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Really? He's been saying that all along. But you recall what happened. Ten of the twelve spies now were scared of some of the large men occupying Canaan. Sometimes it's better not to see what's around the corner. Verse 26. Yet you would not go up. 
but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. These are large men. Then I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents in fire by day and in the, by night and in the cloud by day to show you by what way you should go. Oh, how God hates it when his people have no faith. How much more evidence do you need that God is strong? He wiped out the whole Egyptian army. He took an entire sea and made a wall out of it. In verses 34 and 35. And the Lord heard your words and was angered and he swore, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers. God sentenced Israel to wander the wilderness. And now in Deuteronomy, they've just finished after nearly 40 years. So this is very fresh on their minds. And Moses recalls in verses 41 through 44 that Israel tried to recant. They tried to say, whoops, we, we didn't trust the Lord. Sorry about that. They even went out and tried to fight the Amorites. But they were defeated and humiliated as the Lord was not fighting for them. Verse 45, second to last verse of the chapter. And you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. There's a third way God initiates fellowship despite. God initiates fellowship despite necessary discipline. Despite necessary discipline. Now, chapter 2, verses 1 through 25, takes a lengthy, lengthy portion to recall the wilderness wandering years. The discipline of the Lord was not to be glossed over. It was meant to be well remembered. This is a good lesson for us as parents, isn't it? If you're going to discipline your child, doing doing so in a way that they don't remember is not effective. We've said this when you're spanking little bitty ones. What's the proper way to spank them? You spank them so that the first 30 seconds afterwards, they're doing this. Right? If you just give them a little tap, all that does is make them mad. God doesn't give a little tap. He spanks hard. And he takes 25 verses to say, remember, 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 remember what I did to you when you wouldn't trust me. And now Moses recalls three interesting events near the end of this wilderness wandering, events where they're, they're, they're very humbling to Israel. And just very briefly, first of all, Israel was to be kind to the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, the twin brother of their father, Jacob. Chapter two, verse four, and command the people you were about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau who live in Sire, and they will be afraid of you. So be very careful. Do not contend with them for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on because I have given Mount Sire to Esau as a possession. First fact. Second one, Israel was to be kind to the Moabites. They were not Canaanites. The Moabites were descended from Abraham's nephew, Lot. Chapter 2, verse 9. 
And the Lord said to me, do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I have given Ar to the people of Lot for a possession. And the third event that was humbling to Israel, Israel was to be kind to the Ammonites. Why? Because they too were descended from Lot. Moab and Ammon were brothers. Chapter 2, verse 19. And when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot for a possession. Now, technically speaking, these are Gentile nations. They're not Canaanites, but they are Gentile nations. And yet, did you notice that God has allotted land for them as well? Not only did Israel have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, but they also received a lesson in the grace of God, that God extends His grace to whom He chooses. He is the initiator of grace. And we saw in our introductory message last time, we, got a, we get a small foretaste of the fact that the Abrahamic covenant is ultimately meant to bless all the nations who will place their faith in the Lord someday, and that Israel is merely the means to that blessing Israel is not an end in herself. She's not the culmination of the redemptive plan of God. She's the corridor to the redemptive plan of God for the whole world. And so part of Israel's discipline was to be given a proper attitude toward other nations. They exist not to look down their noses at other nations, but to be God's instrument on his behalf. They were to judge the Canaanite peoples on God's behalf. They were to show mercy to the Semitic peoples on God's behalf. And so Israel was to recognize that she is simply a tool in the hands of God. And if you've read through the Gospels at all, you know that in Jesus' day, what was the general attitude of Israel's leaders toward Gentiles? Israel loathed the Gentiles. They looked down on them. Many were consumed by a hatred of Gentiles. This was never supposed to be the case. Yes, Israel was God's chosen nation set apart by a system of laws. But their mission was to be what? A kingdom of priests. To invite the world to worship the one true living God. So when was the necessary discipline finished? Chapter 2 verse 16. So as soon as all the men of war had perished and were dead from among the people. Here's a fourth part of God initiating fellowship. God initiates fellowship despite spiritual inexperience. Despite spiritual inexperience, this second generation of Israel would need the confidence that God was truly going to fight for them. There's no teacher-like experience. Remember, most of them hadn't even been born yet at the Red Sea. They're, They're younger. They had not learned to consistently trust the Lord. And so the Lord placed in their paths two wicked kings of pagan peoples. First was King Sion of Heshbon. Israel offered them peace. And they refused. Chapter 2, verse 31. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have begun to give Sion and his land over to you. Begin to take possession that you may occupy his land. Then Sion came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Jahaz. And the Lord our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons and all his people. And we captured all his cities at that time and devoted to destruction every city, men, women, and children. We left no survivors. Now, our sensibilities have trouble grasping God ordering the execution of an entire people. But briefly, we have to remember two important facts. First of all, God is God, and whatever He does is always right. It's always good. 
But the second important fact is that God was judging a wicked people, a people who were training their children in wickedness. And this is hard for us to grasp, but let me give you an example that maybe you can understand a little bit better rather than going back 3,500 years. Historically, we know that the men who slaughtered countless Jews and Christians and the disabled and the elderly on behalf of Adolf, Adolf Hitler were the same men who joined the Hitler youth as children. That they were trained in wickedness. And that's why they were so easy to command to slaughter millions of people. They've been trained from a small age to be wicked. And so if God wants to wipe out wicked children, that is his business. It is also his business if he wants to save many of them spiritually. That is in his realm. That is his purview. His alone. That's what happened with the first king, Sion. And then in chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, much the same thing happens with Og, the king of Bashan. Israel defeats them as well. Now, during this time, Moses had an understudy, Joshua. Joshua was soon to take over as the leader of Israel, the commander of her armies. And we see the purpose of these two major battles. Look at chapter 3, verse 21. Chapter 3, verse 21, this is the purpose. And I commanded Joshua at that time, your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. So God has given evidence of his faithfulness and his willingness to fight on behalf of his people as they're faithful and obedient to him. He initiates fellowship despite their spiritual inexperience. Well, finally, God initiates fellowship despite flawed leadership. He initiates fellowship despite flawed leadership. Well, now Moses recalls the discipline of the Lord in his own life. When Moses let his anger at the rebellious people get the best of him and strike the rock for water instead of speaking to it as God had commanded. God had decreed that Moses would now not be allowed to enter the land of Canaan with the people. And Moses, in humility and very transparently, he recounts how he pled and he begged the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 23. And I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, Oh, Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness in your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country in Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Moses would be allowed to go to the top of Mount Pisgah to see all of Canaan. This would have been, by the way, about the month of February. When this happened later at the end of Deuteronomy, February is about the only month that you can see all the way to the Mediterranean Ocean from Mount Pisgah. So he was allowed to see all the good land. And just in case you think this is harsh, Moses would enter that land, just not in his lifetime. Uh, The next time that we know he would get to enter it was at the Mount of Transfiguration when he appeared with the Lord Jesus Christ on the mountain. And I wonder if Moses there kind of looked around a little bit Just kind of see, hey, this is pretty cool. I finally got to see it. Took 1,500 years, but I made it. Chapter 3, verse 28. But charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he shall go over at the head of this people, and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. 
So do you see that God initiated fellowship with Israel despite Israel? Despite her flaws and her foibles and her foul-ups? I'll tell you, one of the most important keys to maintaining a thankful and worshipful heart before the Lord is the certain knowledge that your salvation from sin, the forgiveness given to you by God through Christ, was wholly initiated by God. It was His idea. Romans 5 verse 10 says that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through Christ. Here's how the story went. You were born. You began sinning pretty much immediately. Your depraved mind and heart only wanted to serve yourself. And yet God had already ordained the very moment in time when the reconciliation he had planned and provided for Christ would be consummated. As Titus 3, 5, and 6 tells us so gloriously, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. God initiates fellowship. That's our first lesson. Now, that brings us, in the time of Moses, up to the present point. He's done with the history, for the most part. The first lesson for enjoying fellowship with God, God initiates fellowship. That's so important because that's the foundation for enjoying fellowship with God. The second lesson, obedience maintains fellowship. Obedience maintains fellowship. We'll start going a little bit faster now. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Oh, where does obedience begin? It begins with your bibliology. It begins with what you believe about the word of God. What does he say here? Don't add to the word. Don't take away from it. Don't make things up. And don't ignore the commands that seem less than convenient. This was precisely the problem, by the way, with the Pharisees in Jesus' day. They ignored massive numbers of laws and, and traditions. They then made the, their own traditions the real law. That's what they followed. They ignored the parts of God's law they didn't want. And then they added rules and traditions that weren't even in the Scriptures. In verses 3 and 4, Moses reminds them of the incident just recently when Balaam and the Moabites enticed many of Israel's men into idolatry and sexual immorality. God killed the offenders. The ones who stayed tra- true to the Lord stayed alive. And so Israel was to obey the Lord. But though, what's the bigger purpose? It's not just so they could live blessed lives with God's favor, although that was certainly one byproduct. No, the bigger purpose of their obedience was to set them apart. They were to be different from the surrounding peoples. To be a witness to the one true living God. Verse 6 of chapter 4. Speaking of the word of God, the commandments of God. Keep them and do them. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. Who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Same lesson for the church. You want to attract the world to Christ? We need to be as little like the world as possible. 
It's not the other way around. Being like the world doesn't do anything except make us like the world. Being as Christ would have us, being the church, completely different, completely set apart, not bound by man's law when it comes to the church, but bound by the conscience given to us and by the word of God. That's when the lost say there's something I want and you have it. God tells them the key to obedience, and that is saturation in the Word of God. Chapter 4, verse 9. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. They were, uh, as is outlined in verses 10 through 13, they were to recount over and over again how the Lord met with them at Mount Sinai, Horeb, how they saw the mountain burning with fire from heaven, how they heard the voice of God speak from the midst of the fire. In other words, the Israelites were to review this over and over and over again with every generation. You want your children to know what the word of God says and be continually reminded, then you place them under the preached and taught word of God continually. Continually. Your children will know what God's word says if they grow up being given every opportunity to learn. Children's ministry, students, student ministry, sitting in worship services every single Sunday. What a great service you do to your kids to just sit them under the word of God. And look, this whole section here in chapter 4, It couldn't be more clear. Verse 1, listen to the statutes and rules. Verse 1, do them. Verse 5, do them in the land. Verse 6, keep them and do them. Verse 9, keep your soul diligently. Verse 13, keep the Ten Commandments. Verse 14, do them in the land. Over and over and over again, do them, do them, do them. As new covenant believers in Christ, and you understand this, God's covenant with Israel is not our binding document. The law of Moses is not for the church universal. It was for the nation of Israel. But the law of Christ couldn't be more clear. Jesus himself commanded in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. All that Jesus commanded, he taught to the apostles and they wrote superintended by the Holy Spirit, those words down what we have in the entire New Testament. It is the grace of God which initiates fellowship with us and it is our obedience which maintains that fellowship. And that's not to say our our obedience maintains our status as justified and forgiven. That's not the point. But within the family of God in Christ, our unhindered joy in the Lord, our unhindered Communion and fellowship with him is maintained by obedience, maintained by confession of sin. In humility, we continue to ask for the Lord's help with our daily sin, to know and to obey his commandments all the more out of love for Christ. And just to set the record straight here, there can be some confusion regarding obedience. I think particularly because of terrible preaching in the church over the past 50 years, there's a confusion over the difference between obedience and legalism. And there's been a a huge push in past decades to say that if you require obedience of Christians, you are a legalist. This is not that complex. It's very simple. What is legalism? Legalism is an attempt by an unbeliever to gain favor by obeying the Bible. 
to the tempt by an unbeliever to gain favor by obeying the Bible. Obedience, on the other hand, is the maintenance of sweet fellowship with God by a redeemed person. That's the difference. And when a Christian is trying to maintain fellowship by legalistic means, what does that look like? That looks like adding rules to the Bible just to make sure that I don't break something in the Bible. No, we don't do that. How do you maintain relationship with the Lord? Obey his word and don't add anything to it. There's plenty in here to obey. Trust me, you don't need to add one more thing to it. The first lesson for enjoying fellowship with God, God initiates fellowship. Second, obedience maintains fellowship. And third, idolatry spoils fellowship. Idolatry spoils fellowship. Chapter 4, verse 15. Therefore, therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Verse 23. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Let's focus for just a moment here on the potential false gods and idols that the people in the ancient Near East tended to worship. Moses lists them in verses 16 through 19. The likeness of a human being, the likeness of any land animal, of any bird, of anything that creeps on the ground, of any fish. They can't worship the sun or the moon or the stars. These are all created things. And I don't know if you notice this, but Moses lists them exactly in backwards order from the created order of Genesis 1. It's God's will that he be worshipped as the creator, the only true and living God. And to engage in idolatry of any kind was to attempt to reverse the truth of creation. To go backwards from the knowledge of the one true living God. I know it can feel like we're far removed from idolatry and Probably none of you have ever worshipped a moon god or a wooden idol shaped like a lizard or a platypus or anything like that. I've never visited any of your homes and seen you hiding a little sun god somewhere. But this is where it's so important to remember that every spiritual principle in the Pentateuch has an application to you and me as new covenant participants in Christ. Here's a short list of idols which have infiltrated the church of Jesus Christ. The idol of church as entertainment. With the advent of professional touring singers and musicians becoming much more popular with the advent of recorded music available to the masses just in the past century or so, the church has begun to follow suit. And now the goal of a worship service has changed from giving God glory and being saturated in truth to now making people happy and feeling entertained. Now the focus has become horizontal instead of vertical. That is the idol of church as entertainment. How about the idol of a blasphemous view of the Holy Spirit? The idol of a blasphemous view of the Holy Spirit. 
God says very clearly, don't make an image of me because the image will be inaccurate. But with the coming of the charismatic movement in the early 20th century, a completely unorthodox and man-centered image theology of the Holy Spirit began to develop. It's a theology that says that the real focus of the Christian faith is the Holy Spirit and His power and His manifestations of observable phenomenon. In fact, this has been touted even by some Reformed theologians as the, the sign gifts that are simply, they say, continuing on. And yet the way they're practiced today bears no resemblance whatsoever to the true gifts manifested before the death of the apostles and the completion of the New Testament. Paul said that he spoke in tongues, other languages, more than anyone, and yet his focus is clearly on one thing. He told the Corinthians who were obsessed with spiritual gifts, I have decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And the heresy of the charismatic movement has been in the estimation of many church historians the greatest single catastrophe in church history. How about the idol of church growth? The idol of church growth, it has brought smiles to the faces of many that the church growth movement has basically been on fire during COVID. I don't mean on fire in a good way. I mean burning to a crisp. Because you can't attract the masses with your media uh, glitz and glamour on a 15-inch screen. It just doesn't work. But it's still alive and well, unfortunately. Jesus promised that he would build his church, and he told us the means that he would use to preach the word. When the local church makes their goal to create a gathering of people simply for the sake of building some sort of empire or monument, then the church has lost its way. The goal of the church, we said this Friday evening, is to be the pillar and the foundation stones of the truth. That's what we're to be. And now in this idol of church growth, the programs and emphases, emphases of the church, they're not geared towards shepherding, but they're geared toward pleasing people. And now... Once you go down that road, you have to maintain the machine. You have to keep growing and keep growing to make the machine more and more attractive. And that takes money. Money takes people. And so you have to attract the people. And now the goal is not to build Christ's church. The goal is to build your church. Big difference. Yes, we're to respond to growth, but we're not called to artificially create growth. There's a couple of newer idols that we've seen in recent years. Today, the idol of the social justice church, the idol of the social justice church, that the church is now supposed to solve the ills of society and stand up for the agendas which unbelievers set for us. We do believe in social justice. We just don't believe it's going to happen immediately and it's going to take the second coming of Christ to ultimately make all things just and right. We don't believe that an unsaved humanity is able to define what is just and what is not just. In fact, the Bible says very clearly that unsaved mankind, their minds are upside down. They don't know what is right and what's wrong. Social justice will happen when Christ returns and vindicates the saved and judges the lost and makes all things right. And every time the church tries to get on every bandwagon that the world says that we should be on, we always end up looking like buffoons. That's not what we're designed to do. Not what we're called to do. It takes our focus off of what the church is to be doing, proclaiming Christ to a dying world. And then a newer idol, probably the most recent one, I would call this one the idol of the good neighbor church. 
the idol of the good neighbor church. The coronavirus has brought up a whole new flavor of idolatry that the church is supposed to be a good neighbor by scattering, by not being together. Now the idol has become personal health. And we've said this before, but we already know the statistic. 100% of unsaved people are going to die and go to hell. 100% of them. And so the most neighborly thing we can do is to gather together to proclaim the gospel. That's being a good neighbor. And we can all get a little bit incensed about those, but what about the personal idols that we all struggle with? A perfected spouse, personal achievement, money, a career ladder that's satisfying, popularity, fear of man, a church that's run exactly the way you want, power, control, wishing you had more of something good or less of something bad. The choice of idols that we have, it's endless. And so we ought not to think that somehow idolatry was just an Israelite problem 3,500 years ago. Idolatry spoils fellowship because now your relationship with God isn't exclusive. You're sharing yourself with other gods. First lesson for enjoying fellowship with God, God initiates fellowship, obedience maintains fellowship, idolatry spoils fellowship. Here's a fourth lesson. Discipline restores fellowship. Discipline restores fellowship. Chapter 4, verses 25 through 28, Moses declares that when Israel has been in the land many generations and has, in fact, as a nation, not to say there won't be faithful individuals, but as a nation, turned to idolatry and turned away from God, then God will scatter them and drive them out to other nations by being just like the idolatrous nations all around them. Why is that important? If they're going to be like everyone else, Israel now forfeits the rationale for their existence. They exist to be different, not to be the same. They're to be a light to the other nations. Verse 28. Moses says what's going to happen. Of chapter 4, verse 28. And there you shall serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands, that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. The consequences of their idolatry would be basically to be given over it. Now, this doesn't mean that every single Israelite taken into captivity centuries later are going to be idol worshippers individually. What it means is they're being turned over to nations that are run by idol worshippers. And so they'll no longer have the privilege of living in a theocratic, God-honoring society. But the national discipline would be purposeful. It was to have a desired result. Verse 29 but from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Israel split into two nations around 930 B.C. and 722, the northern kingdom of of Israel fell to Assyria and beginning in 605 all the way to about 586 BC the southern kingdom fell to Babylon and when the exiles began returning from Babylon there was for a time a new determination as Moses predicts here to love obey and worship the Lord Nehemiah chapter 8 records this beautiful scene where all of the people gathered together to hear the word of God preached get this all day Ultimately, though, Israel won't return to a full worship of God in faithfulness until Christ has come. But the lesson here is clear. 
while God will never forsake Israel, while he will never forget the covenant that he has with them, he has for a time brought them under discipline. And in fact, Israel's mission in the Old Testament was to turn nations to serve the living God. Now, according to Romans chapter 11, God is using the Gentile church, the nations, to make some of Israel jealous. And the point, verse 13 of Romans 11, and thus to save some of them. God also warns us as the Gentile church in Romans 11 that we're not to be arrogant toward Israel. We're not to be arrogant toward the Jews. They are the branch. The Gentile church has been grafted in. They're the original. We're not. And Paul looks forward to a day when some of what he calls the broken branches will be grafted back in, meaning that God will bring restoration to his people. So the discipline of the Lord is is for the purpose ultimately of restoring fellowship. And listen, we're bombarded with idols all around us. They're everywhere. I've already listed some of them. And one of the ways the Lord draws us to himself and keeps us just continually seeking after him is continual discipline. Hebrews 12, Hebrews 12, beginning of verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. How do you understand the discipline of the Lord? We have to understand it. It has to be shaped by the previous two verses. And you have forgotten, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Here it is. For the Lord disciplines the one he, what? Loves. And chastises every son whom he receives. There are so many idols all around us that God graciously keeps us in a state of generally suffering in some way all the time, doesn't he? And listen, this is a mercy of God that we're continually reminded that the idols that may tempt us are useless, are dead, are worthless, and that we may look with faith to the one true living God I think most of you or all of you could testify that it's in the times of greatest pain that we most intently look to the Lord. Why is that? Because discipline restores fellowship. I'm becoming more and more convinced that the discipline of the Lord is nearly a daily thing. It's just part of his love for us to keep us close by. That as we say, oh, look at this cliff, I think I'll jump. Nope, whack. Oh, look at this den of lions, I think I'll dive in. Here, kitty, kitty, no, whack. I think I'll go down this road of sin. It can't hurt me that bad. Whack. Just continually making a seek after him. How many of you could point to 50 days in your life that have been absolutely pain-free? I don't think anybody could. I don't think we could get down to five or ten. God initiates fellowship. Obedience maintains fellowship. Idolatry spoils fellowship. Discipline restores fellowship. Idolatry spoils fellowship, discipline restores fellowship, and one more lesson. Theology encourages fellowship. Theology encourages fellowship. I want you to imagine this. You met your spouse 30 years ago. You fell in love. 
And on your first date, you learned three great things about this person. And for the past 30 years, you haven't paid attention to anything else. And you have continued loving your spouse for those three great things you learned in your first interaction. No, that's not true. Your love builds and builds and builds as you walk through life together and learn more and more and more of each other. And in the same way, theology, the knowledge of God, encourages our fellowship with him. Now Moses closes the first part of the covenant, his first sermon to Israel this day with a glorious expression of the greatness of God. Verse 32. For ask now in the days that are past, ask now of the days that are past, which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Out of heaven he lets you hear his voice that he might discipline you. And on earth he lets you see his great fire and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath there is no other. Man, Moses knows how to close a sermon. What a statement. He's a God who speaks to his people. He's a God who rescued his people from the clutches of the most powerful nation on earth. He's the God who sent mighty signs and wonders in Egypt such as had never been seen. He's the God who made war with the most powerful man on earth, Pharaoh of Egypt. He's the God who manifested himself in the fire of Sinai. He's the God who drives out mighty nations before them. He is the God who is in heaven. He is the God who is on earth. There is no other And what is to be Israel's response in love and devotion? Verse 40. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God has given you for all time. Theology encourages fellowship. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ has essentially made the same presentation of himself. We could overlay Christ quite easily on this great declaration of the knowledge of God. From our knowledge of the Gospels, we could very easily understand Christ saying, did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking in person to them, having come to earth as a man? Has any God ever attempted to rescue his people from the clutches of sin by offering himself as a sacrifice instead of them? Has any God by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm come to earth as a man and healed the sick, walked on water, created food from nothing, cast out evil spirits or raised the dead? Has any God ever come from heaven to the earth which he created? Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord Jesus Christ is God in heaven 
And He has come to the earth beneath. There is no other. It's the same God. And so what do we do? Same as verse 40. We repent of our sins. And you place your faith in the one true living God presented in His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said it this way. In Mark 8, calling the crowd to Him with His disciples, He said to them, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. Jesus promised in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And then, through Christ, the manifestation of God, without whom no one will know God, through Christ, what do we have? We have fellowship with God. We have communion with God. We have reconciliation with God. We have unity with God. We have eternal oneness with God, all through Christ. And so I hope you see that Deuteronomy 1 through 4, while Israel was disobedient, we see that she is in fellowship with God because of God, initiated by God, and it's exactly the same for us. We're in fellowship with God, initiated by God, all because of Christ. And so Deuteronomy 1 through 4 points us directly to the cross, does it not? Points us all the way to Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this amazing text. We're drawn, Lord, to it, and especially, I think, this climactic conclusion to the first sermon of Moses here. What other God is there like you? And we can only answer with the great Shema that the Lord our God is one. You are the only true living God You have manifested yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have made him known to us through the Spirit. And so we worship you as the one true living God. May we, Lord, take lessons from Israel. May we maintain our fellowship through obedience. May we remember that idolatry spoils fellowship. And may we, Lord, seek after you each and every day, knowing you more and more through your words, seeking to... Maintain that fellowship, that communion, that sweetness, that relationship through our knowledge of you and through our desire to humbly obey you. Thank you for those who are hearing this this evening. I pray, Lord, that the word of God would nail its truths deeply into our hearts, never to be forgotten and always to be applied. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.